Welcome to Carve Your Own Fucking Path, a podcast featuring candid interviews with unconventional entrepreneurs who are boldly doing business and life on their own terms. I'm Willow, your host and media coach. A lot of online professionals struggle with showing up on camera comfortably and confidently to share their message. As a media coach, I help you improve your on-camera presence and your storytelling skills so you can create real connections with your target audience, gain visibility, and ultimately make a bigger impact. All of my guests on this show have a super big mission and inspiring story to tell. You will hear the messy truths and unconventional paths from entrepreneurs who are showing up in their business and being seen. It's all been a part of their journey and we dive deep into that experience. I'm really excited for you to meet my next guest. Okay, on to the show. Welcome, Sam, to Carve Your Own Fucking Path. Thank you for hopping on from Tulum. Very jealous. Sam, you are a thought leader, speaker, author, corporate culture consultant, and a men's coach. I have so many questions for you, but let's start with a little bit about, or a lot, about the path that you were on previously. So I know that's a big question. Give us a snapshot. Awesome. Yes, we can, uh, we can, we can cover that. Thank, first of all, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, awesome to be talking to you. And um, hello from Tulum and to uh, Lisbon. <laughs> Not a bad place either. Sure, that's true. Um, the path I was on, um, if there was one word to describe it, it was running and destruction uh, was a path that I had been on basically for my entire life until about eight years ago. And it, it started with, um, you know, from, from the second I was born, I, um, I had the umbilical cord wrapped around my head, so I wasn't breathing from the moment I was born. So I had an emergency C-section. So basically I was from, from day one, I was, I was, you know, fighting for breath. And so for me, that gave me, I was just, as soon as I came into this world, I was just downloaded with this unsafety program. The world is unsafe. I'm unsafe. Um, I need to be, I need safety. I need to search for safety. And that morphed into a story of mine that um, love equaled being saved for me. So like all this, so growing up, um, after coming into the world, not breathing, um, three things that I created and manifested for myself were asthma, uh, food allergies, and I was, I, I had a propensity to choke on my food mm. when I was a kid. So all three of those things, you know, asthma, obviously the lungs, food allergies, your throat swells up, can't breathe, and then choking, something's lodged in your throat. So I had all, like, this was how I was kind of brought into the world was this, like, I can't breathe, Bre- breathing is not hard for me, and breathing is a basic human function. So mm-hmm. for me, I was like, I'm, a, I'm terrible at breathing, like I must be broken. So I need to be saved in order, if, if you're not saving me, I'm not lovable. So um, I basically went through most of my life creating reasons for people to save me, whether that's girlfriends, jobs, drugs and alcohol, my parents, whatever it was, I was always looking to be saved as proof of love mm-hmm. because that's how I felt lovable was, you know, like if I needed something to be wrong with me in order for, to be lovable. And so what that led to that path I was on was first of all, you know, constantly looking for safety as a kid, constantly running, constantly, um, you know, so there's a, there's a difference between vigilance and observance. And uh, Peter Crone actually said it best. I heard him on a podcast a few weeks ago. Um, He said that when he was really young, he lost his parents and he had to be really vigilant and vigilance is observance, but based in fear, whereas observance is more of just like based in love and be wit- and witness of kind of what's going on around you. So 
I had this, um, this massive amount of vigilance that was always, you know, head on a swivel, looking around, what, what threat's coming next? Is it going to be a, you know, pollen in the spring? Is it going to be a peanut and a cake that I don't see? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I spent three, maybe four or five weeks a year in the hospital growing up until I was about 15 from either asthma attacks, food allergies, um, whatever it was, like there was, like I've, what, when I was younger, like there's no way an eight-year-old kid with an asthma attack would be able to drive himself to the hospital to basically save himself. So I like, I had this program in me that like I needed saving in order, if I was to survive, I needed saving. Mm-hmm. So it's, you fast forward that through my whole life until I was in my early forties. Um, you know, like one of the ways it manifested itself a lot was in relationships. Mm-hmm. And so um, I would say, you know, the contract that I would kind of lay down when I fell in love with a girl, we fell in love. Like there was definitely love there and I love them, but the subconscious underlying contract of that was, okay, I love you and you love me. Great. Now I am your responsibility. If I get in trouble, if I, if something's wrong with me and I will create things to be wrong with me, mm-hmm. you need to save me to prove to me that you love me. Mm-hmm. And so that was very, that's clearly destructive and always ended in heartbreak. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that did save me um, was tennis. So when I was really young, um, I, I, I was really withdrawn as a kid, really withdrawn socially because I was so scared. Um, you know, like in Vermont, I grew up in Vermont. So a lot of like birthday parties were in barns where there's a lot of farm animals and hay. And that to me meant big threat, red lights going off. Like I'm, I'm probably going to die if I go there. And so I would avoid these parties and, became, and I got, and I developed this really bad social anxiety that, that basically followed me until um, I was 38 years old. And so when I found tennis, tennis allowed, tennis, I always say this, it was my first, sa- it was a, my savior and my first love. And so I fell in love with tennis, tennis fell in love with me. I ended up being really good at it. It was, I just, it, everything about it was perfect. Um, having asthma and like that, the, you know, the breathing was always a question. If I was playing soccer or baseball or uh, basketball, it was always like, oh my gosh, like running around all the time, like I'm definitely going to have to have an asthma attack or use my inhaler at some point in this game. And it's going to be a problem for my teammates and a problem for me and people are going to look at me and I'm going to be different. And, you know, it was a fate worse than death really. Mm-hmm. So uh, tennis was an individual sport. So there's no one else to worry about. And also it allows for constant breaks. You know, you run around for 30 seconds, then you take a break, change sides, all those things. So um, I just dove into tennis and tennis, it got me um, to a high school in Florida and tennis Academy. And then it got me a college scholarship. Mm. And it, it was kind of my identity. Like it was, mm. it was, I was a tennis player and it was the number one thing in my life. Like I was dead set on following Andre Agassi's footsteps into being a professional tennis player. Um, mm. That was my thing that was going to happen. Like school didn't matter. College didn't matter. I went to college, not for the education, but for the tennis. Mm-hmm. And so um, after co- my senior year of college, my, uh, the tennis coach called me into his office and was like, um, he's like, so Sam, he's like, I think that it's the best interest of you and the tennis team if, if you don't play tennis anymore. He's, he's like, it's nothing against you as a person, but you were just burnt out on tennis. Mm-hmm. And basically, I had been playing tennis every day since I was eight years old. And I, you know, in the back of my head, I was like, oh, no. But I was also like, he's right. Like, I was way more interested in the social scene at this point. Um, just like I kind of figured out there's a life outside of tennis at this point. And I was like, you know, and I was, I was burnt out on tennis. I, I knew it, it was kind of in my head now at this point that if I was going to be a professional tennis player, I would have to give up and sacrifice a lot of my life that I had learned to love mm-hmm. to, to take that to the next level. And I'm like, I just wasn't interested in doing that. 
Okay. So uh, end of my tennis career, basically there. I played a couple like um, adult tournaments after college, um, kind of semi-pro tournaments, but it, it was really, it was just, I was just kind of hanging on to a tennis career that was already gone. And so what I was really doing well was hanging on to my identity. Um, you know, I didn't, and I didn't realize it at the time, but like tennis was, I mean, it was my whole entire focus for until that point. And so um, when tennis went away, you know, I, I was lost. Like I had gone to college for tennis, so I didn't really, I didn't focus on college to be honest. Like I didn't focus on like my major with sports management okay. and I didn't focus on that, you know? And so I get out of college and I'm like, well, what, what do I do now? Yeah. So I got a job at a bank and then as tennis fell away is when the partying came in. Yeah. Now this is when things got really destructive. So about age 23 ish, I graduated college. Um, I did that fifth year of high school. So I had, a, I was a little bit older than most when I graduated college, but from 23 to 38 was a pretty much a, a decline from a, de a decline in life, but you know, an increase in the party. And so when I was 23, I, you know, I, I had the job and I, and I would go to work and it was an easy data entry job at a bank, um, just out of college job. Mm -hmm. And so it was really easy for me to go out Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and make it to work on Monday or make it to work every one of those days. Because, you know, first of all, you know, when you're younger, you can recover a little better. Yeah. Good old days. <laughs> but, uh, for, yeah, I know. Resiliency, <laughs> the resilience of youth. Exactly. So, um, so in that time, I ended up, I met a girl, we got married and we were in North Carolina at the time. And then we moved to Florida. Um, when we got to Florida, things didn't work out. And it was kind of, um, I just realized that that marriage wasn't for me, that, that being in that relationship wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't, there was no happiness there for me in the long term. So that ended and I moved to Miami when I was 29, 30 ish. Mm -hmm. And that's when, that's when the partying really picked up. So, so basically I went from having this tennis career which was, you know, a governor in my life, kind of a, a control switch in my life. I had a couple, uh, maybe a year or two of, of being single, and then I jumped in right into basically a marriage. So I had another control switch on my life. And so now I'm 29 years old. And for the first time in my life, really, I have zero control switches on my life. And so, um, you know, my, my internal locus of control was like non-existent, you know, and so everything, I just jumped right into, I was, I became a commercial real estate broker in Miami. Um, and that was when the market, it was 2004 and the market was just like on fire. Mm -hmm. uh, basically you show up at work and they give you checks for $10,000. Oh and it's like, okay, this is fun. <laughs> like I can, I could do this. Yeah. And so, you know, Miami, <laughs> commercial real estate, money. And a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and single. And single. So it's, yeah. yeah. So it's like, uh, <laughs> the pitfall, the, 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 the joy was like, awesome, but the pitfalls were everywhere. And so for three years, I actually did meet a girl uh, shortly after that, but for three years, it was like, I mean, just the, the, the destruction just exponentially grew every six mm -hmm. months to the point where, you know, like I started fighting with my family. I, I, uh, I told this massive lie to my family about being caught with drugs outside of a club in Miami because I, I needed money and because I just blown all my money one weekend partying like there was just these these, these consequences were starting to show up in my life big time mm -hmm. and it kind of it came to a head in 2007 when um, I had been up all night partying and uh, I left my car in Coral Gables which is um, by Coconut Grove where I was living and I went back to get my car and of course no sleep hadn't brushed my teeth like still in my clothes the night before and I was looking around my car for my wallet and I went through a red light and t-boned a car and got 
it wasn't my first DUI, but it was it was the DUI that kind of triggered. I got a DUI when I was much younger, uh, maybe mm -hmm. like early twenties, and uh, it was so I spent a night in jail in Miami, and mm -hmm. the next morning, you know, it was kind of like, and then, like I said, this was like this was like the head of every, like everything coming to a head. Like my girlfriend had left me for a month or two before that. We just got back together. Mm -hmm. uh, my family was like, what are you doing? Like my sisters would call me crying. My, my one sister would call me crying. My other sister cut me out of her life. Cause she's like, I can't like your lifestyle is too intense for me. I can't do this. I can't watch you do this. You know, fighting with my mom, fighting with my dad. It was just really disastrous, like chaos everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, and I felt it too, but I didn't see it as a problem and so much mm -hmm. as like, I just need a break. Like I just need a timeout. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I got a lawyer in Miami and, and my parents were like, you, should, you know, everyone was like, you should probably go away for 30 days to a rehab. Just like, so that the courts see that you're doing something about this. And my girlfriend was like, please go away. And I'm like, you know, that sounds kind of nice. Like mm -hmm. getting away from all this. Like, it sounds like, like I need a yeah. break. And so this, at this point, it's important to mention that all those trips to the hospital as a kid, those were my relief as a kid. Like it was hard for me. It was a lot for me to be out into the world and feel those threats and have that vigilance all the time it was exhausting. It was really exhausting. So when I was in the hospital for those three or four or five weeks and they weren't like consecutive, it was like a week here, a week there. But I remember it being in the hospital and just feeling like, like I can just like relax and I, like I'm safe. And I never felt that out in the world. And so, you know, to this day, like I actually walk into a hospital and I'm like, oh, this feels good to be here. Mm. And like, everyone's like, that's weird. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know. But like my experience of it was like, th right. this was my savior. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I looked at rehab as like another one of those, like, oh, please, like, yes. Like it's so, it takes so much energy to be in this world with my social anxiety, with the drinking out of control, the responsibilities was like, it was a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I was, I went away for the 28 days, came out stayed sober for about two weeks and then but i never my intention I, even in the rehab i would never say like everyone introduces themselves like i'm so and so i'm an alcoholic mm -hmm. i would never say it because i didn't believe it so i would just be like i'm sam i'm i'm here in rehab like uh, i just never and everyone the, the counselors were always like don't you know you're an alcoholic i'm like i don't think i am yeah and so denial. i mean yeah denial yeah 100 percent. like the writings on, i've had I, again that wasn't my that was my third dui but like yeah the consequences i'm like it's just i had a bad stretch or a bad weekend or a bad night or mm -hmm. i'm unlucky and so i was like all i need is just like i need a time out like just to regroup and i'll be good to go so i started drinking about two weeks later and within another two weeks it was probably it was right back to where it was before mm -hmm. so what it looked like is basically I'll start drinking on a Thursday or Friday night mm -hmm. and it'll be Monday or Tuesday and I'm still drinking, doing cocaine. Wow. And that was kind of my routine. And so in that four or five day period, I don't call my girlfriend. I don't call my family. I, I end up over on South beach in a hotel doing whatever with whoever. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's just, it's complete, just disaster. And, what and so was, like, can you remember what was driving it? Were you just trying to feel something? escape can you identify yeah. who the driver was yeah absolutely the driver was that um i didn't love myself mm, yeah i had no like i and when I, when I say i didn't love myself it wasn't even like i was trying to love myself i just didn't i didn't even know about the concept of self-love right because i had spent so much of my life feeling broken and feeling like i'm fixing something and yeah. fighting 
in that fight or flight mode, like always fight or flight that I didn't have time to think about loving myself. Mm-hmm. And not that that sounds kind of like excusey, quote unquote. No. But at the same time, like it's like, I just never thought about it. No one teaches so, you. No one teaches you. And especially, and so what I got taught was like, kids would make fun of me for my breathing or mm-hmm. like I'm a burden on my family because we're always having to go to the hospital or I had to get allergy shots every week. And it's like this time commitment, this financial commitment. And like the thing about team sports is like, if I have to, if I have an asthma attack in the middle of a soccer game, I'm a burden to my team. Mm-hmm. So I had all the, I had like basically everything that's not self-love just yeah. fed me, Wild. fed, fed to my, yeah. So um, really what it was is that I just didn't have, the, I, I didn't, I didn't love who I was. I wanted to feel different. I wanted to be different. I wanted to be included. I wanted, I didn't want to miss out. I felt I had, you know, FOMO fueled a lot of this mm-hmm. in the sense of like, I felt like as a, as a child being so sheltered and having to miss out on so much stuff that I had, I was my, one of my best friends. He's like, you were just, you were trying to trying to make up for lost time. That was part of it. Yeah. But it really came down to the fact that like, I, I just hoped that like, and I always thought like, if I get a, girl, a great girlfriend or a great job or I make enough money, like this won't be a problem anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Again, like, yeah. yeah. But never looking at like, what is it about myself that is driving this? And it was the fact that like, I just didn't like the way I felt, the way I looked, the way I showed up. Mm-hmm. You know, I felt like a, a, a fraud in life. And uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that was the major fuel for it. Wow. And so um, basically that cycle of like destruction, rehab, destruction, rehab, destruction, rehab went on for five more years mm-hmm. um, until I was 38 years old. And then um, I, and all this too was like, so I was in uh, Miami for that first one. About a year later, I moved to North Carolina, back to North Carolina where I went to college um, things got worse there I got cancer in my mouth oral cancer from drinking oh alpha God. balcony 35 feet off the second story of a bar um, ended up in the trauma unit and the thing about that one was that I woke up in the trauma unit on a Monday morning after a football game I was supposed to be on a plane to Vermont because my grandmother had a stroke of the previous Thursday and mm-hmm. she was basically on her deathbed and I was supposed to go to Vermont to say goodbye and, and attend her funeral and so, but I woke up in the trauma unit. And so mm. that, I mean, I, I missed all of that. And so that, that's still like, that's one I'll never get over. Yeah. That's one that I just have to just not suck it up, but like, it's a tough one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so um, all this stuff to me meant like, I was in like that, like live life to the fullest mode, mm-hmm. but it was the, the, I like, so I like to say there's two ways to use the term fuck it. There's fuck it, like I'm gonna rage and like, let's go. Yeah. Like, fuck it. Why you only live once? The very, very destructive way to, to use it. Now, so, and I'll get to the other way in a second, but, um, so 38 years old, I moved up and down the East Coast, like, four times looking for, again, external locus of control. Like, mm-hmm. something will save me. This place will save me. Like, I'll be better in North Carolina. I'll be yeah. better in Delray Beach. I'll be better back in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And it always ended up a disaster because that never works. So I moved back to North Carolina with my girlfriend, um, and we again didn't work out mm-hmm. so she moved back to california where she was from and i was drunk maybe three weeks later and i had been sober for a year at this point wow. um because i had a i had a really really bad experience in delray beach and i was like oh my gosh like i really need to be sober like this is not working at all mm-hmm. but again a year later i'm like oh i think i think it's fixed i think i can probably drink again and for two months i drank and um it was like, it was a complete sprint of, of two months. Like I ended up in the hospital four times. My neighbors woke me up in my front yard a few times. 
eight nights in jail for a DUI in North Carolina that I had my dog in the car with me. He went to the pound, mm. um, lost my house. My, my commercial real estate career was over. And it ended with me at 4 a.m. sitting at my kitchen table. Drug dealer had just left. Friends had just left. And I just, the previous 15 years of my life, really the previous 38 years of my life, mm-hmm. all came knocking on my door is the best way to describe it. And I was just sitting there with all of it. And I just, and I had this, like, I was just like shaking with fear. Um, like the sun was going to come up in four hours and I, I couldn't face the next day. But I really, what it was is that I, I kind of knew, like I had an inner knowing that like tomorrow's going to come and this has to end. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not ready to face that yet. And so I called 911 and said, you guys need to take me into the psych ward because I'm having some really bad thoughts. Mm-hmm. And truth be told, I wasn't really having bad thoughts, but the only thought I was having was I can't do tomorrow. Like I can't, I can't face the day and this has to stop. Mm-hmm. Like I need, I need this, to, this needs to stop. I don't know what the rest of my life is going to look like, but I know that I can never ever do this again. Like this has to end. And so my best thinking was like, I need to go to a psych ward and then figure out my next move, which was go to rehab in Michigan and then another rehab in Utah and then a rehab, and then sober living in Utah, and I ended up in San Francisco. Now, hmm. this is where the, the other side of the fuckets comes in. Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a destructive side of it, and then there's a courageous side of it. So if you, like, when, I knew that, like, if I had to do this, build this new life in San Francisco, that I was going to have to just say, like, all those things. Like, I, I learned to love going to bars to watch football or going to concerts or festivals or all these things that basically are associated with like drinking events, yeah. football games, sporting mm-hmm. events. I love all those things, but I knew I can't drink, but I have to figure out how to go to these things. I have to figure out how to go on dates sober. Mm-hmm. I have to figure out how to meet new people sober. And it was, it was, it was basically fuck it to the fears and yeah. do it anyways. Yeah. And so I had to move. That's the, that was the big trigger for or the big catalyst for me to like build this new life in San Francisco. If I want to like, fuck it, take the risk. Mm-hmm. Go be a, like, I, I lost my job as a uh, recruiter after about six months in San Francisco, which was a blessing because that was awful. Mm-hmm. But, um, I, I literally walked out of the office and said, I'm going to be a personal trainer. And that's what changed, helping, helping other people. You know, first it started with like physical body, nutrition, physical fitness, and then it moved into um, about six years, five years sober. I, I moved into recovery coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would help okay. guys like not so much put down the drink and get sober, but like once they did that, it's really like I would help them recalibrate their life. And then from there, that moved into a lot of uh, mental health coaching, anxiety, depression, stuff like that. And it then moved into what I do now is men's work. I, I coach men. I, I facilitate men's groups, um, mm-hmm. uh, basically facilitate a men's community where like I provide a space for men to do what I did, which is like talk about all the trauma they've ever experienced, everything they're afraid to admit. Everything that, that they think if they admit will ruin their marriage or ruin their job or ruin them. Like I provide a space for them to come and say, I'm scared of this. Like I'm scared that my wife is going to leave me because of X, Y, Z. You know, I, and like I let them cry and I let them laugh and all this stuff. And so that's really what brought me to where I am today as far as being the thought leader, the speaker. And um, again, the corporate culture consultant too is, part of that is like creating a, a safe environment in the workplace that, you know, not like not the toxic work environment, getting away from that and creating a place where people can come and say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like to say, I don't know is one of the most powerful phrases in all of, all of language. 
yeah. to be able to say, I don't know, and feel safe saying that because we've been taught all along, like from mm-hmm. school, we were graded on what we don't know and that and punished for what we don't know. And so we learned that it's not okay to not know. And so, you know, to create an environment where people can say, I don't know, is invaluable. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that is, so, yeah. that is a, an that insane <laughs> story. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, and when you You're speak welcome. about it, does it feel like a different life? Does it even feel like that was you? Yeah, hundred percent. Like I sometimes think like, did I really live in Miami? Like, like it's, I, there's really, there is a, there's a detachment from it, but there's also like a wow factor. Like, oh my gosh, like that all happened, you know, but it, it, I, I often say like, I've lived several lives before. And you know, honestly, I think I've lived lives previous to even being this on this planet at this mm-hmm. time. Like, I think there's other things like there's karma, like my journey is something that I chose 100% chose yeah. because of some sort of karmic soul cleansing that I need to do from a past life of whatever it was. Mm-hmm. There was something that I chose that this life was going to be the time when I cleanse all of that stuff for the, for the next one. Mm-hmm. And give back. I mean, now you're giving back yeah. so yeah. much. Mm-hmm. So you're, life now is dedicated to supporting holding space empowering yeah so many people and it's incredible because the thank you that's why i mean your story is so i mean it almost is like how how is this even (laughs) true (laughs) you know but again it's like the it's a such a massive transformation and you're not letting it just go to waste no um, so one of the, one of the catalysts was that, uh, my sister, Amanda, my older sister, she passed away in 2018 from alcoholism and mental illness, but she was the silent sufferer and I was not the silent sufferer. Like, but like, I recognize that there's people that do this in silence because they're afraid. You know, they don't have the place to come and say, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. Mm-hmm. So like th- those are the ones that really need the help because those are the ones that never get asked. So that's a big reason that I do what I do. Okay. And so that was eight years ago that you were sitting at that table. Now you're looking at things. You're so self-aware. You speak about your traumas and, you know, how it manifests throughout your life mm-hmm. and all of that. So what kind of help did you get? Like, did you have coaches, therapists, you were in rehab for a while, but what really like helped you? It was, um, yeah, I had, I had therapists. Um, I did a lot of, I went to therapy a lot. Um, there, it's been an evolution. I'd say one of the most important things that I had that I did was I, I aligned myself with other men that I could, I could get vulnerable with mm-hmm. and I could say like, I'm struggling and like right. went into like, I did men's weekends at, at, at places where you can go and cry and you can mm-hmm. say like, holy crap. Like you can look at other men and, and other men can say you're okay. Like, you're okay, bro. You're not broken anymore. Like yeah. you're like, give you a hug and be like, I see you, you know, to hear that from like, cause a lot of it is, is like, no one knows, no one sees, no one feels like no one gets it. And when another guy can say like, bro, I get it. Like, I yeah. see you, like, I'm here for you. Like, and then, so from like having that is like the ba- the bedrock of it all mm-hmm. on top of that bedrock is things like breath work. Mm-hmm. Um, like I started recently diving into the plant medicine stuff. And like the, cause therapy, a lot of times therapy can be, unless you can get into a deep, deep state place, it's a lot of what you know, mm-hmm. and you operate in the cycles of what you know, yep. and you keep repeating the same things. And that's what I was doing with AA, for example, it was, it ended up being a, a lot of repetition for me. So I had to step away from AA 
and just search for the things that I didn't know. And so, you know, using plant medicines, whether that's DMT or ayahuasca or mm -hmm. mushrooms, whatever it may be, it allows me to tap into um, other things, like things I don't know and, and feel connection and to learn like when you have, when you, when you go into those places and you are in breath work is the same way. When you go into that breath work and you have that release, mm -hmm. basically what you're doing is it's like you're, you're, it's like you're, um, you're tearing away a callus or you're, or you're chipping away at plaque on your life that like basically has been protecting you. So I feel like the first six or seven years of my recovery from the addiction was just doing work to get to the point where I can really heal. Mm -hmm. And then the past two years have been the actual healing because it was like, I had to like get to the point where I was solid enough that I could start chipping away at that layer, yeah. that like layer of, of hard concrete. And then once you get that layer of concrete, that's when you start, that's when I started getting into the, the past life regressions and the childhood traumas and mm, looking okay. at like my experience in the womb with my mother, my mother thought she had cancer for the first four months that she was pregnant with me. Wow. So to say that like, to, that's not an issue. Yeah. Like that's a huge, that's a huge, huge. thing. Like yeah. and the energetics. No, yeah. The energetics, then no blame. I mean, she didn't know, but like, wh what do you do when you have cancer? You fight against it and you try mm -hmm. and get it out of your body. So basically that energy was like, that's, I'm not lovable. I'm, I, I'm, I'm rejected. Like mm -hmm. you're not worthy. And that, and that, and then being born with a umbilical cord on my head and fighting, like to be able to look at all that stuff that never would have happened if I didn't become willing to see what I don't know. And get out of that cycle what are you most excited about now but moving forward like what kind of what projects do you have that you're really looking forward to or what are you currently involved in that you just you really love and feel like this is your calling or maybe all of it uh yeah all of it but i think that um the speaking the the i have a ted talk coming up on may 1st that's i'm really excited about oh my god Congrats. um yeah and so that's gonna be yeah thank you um that and then i think that just this year i've cre i've actually created a community of men called the conscious warrior brotherhood mm. that is really really exciting to me because i really I, I just i know the healing that i've experienced and like it's i'm just so excited to provide that level of of healing and place for men to do this mm -hmm. and um and then to, to be able to do that, to get on stages and, and, and talk about this, like, and do this, like on podcast, I mean, podcast is a stage and to get on stages and talk about this and just spread this message mm -hmm. and just let people know that it's okay not to be okay. You know, people get so wrapped up in like, it's, it's, I can't not be okay. That's the big fear of men. If I appear not okay, my wife will leave me. My boss will fire me. My employees will leave me. Like, it's, mm -hmm. it's not okay not to be okay in this world. And like, that's, that's where so much stuff happens is that fear of not being okay. Because mm -hmm. if you're not okay, you can't just say I'm okay and expect it to go away. Right. So, and, and that is because of culture, like society tells men, you cannot have any like cracks to your facade. You have to be strong and solid. Is that, is that where that comes from? Yeah, um, it, it, it's, you know, like I, and one of those things is that, you know, that fear of appearing a man. When, when, when men can start to sink into like, 
it's, it's a, I'm more of a man. If I can say some, this is wrong with me, let me go handle it. And mm-hmm. then I'll be, I'll be stronger for it. Mm-hmm. So that's that, would you say that's your mission is to kind of change the narrative around masculinity and what that yeah, means? Yeah, 100%. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, one of the things there is like, you know, we talk about toxic masculinity as being a big buzzword right now. And it's, yeah, like, it is. You know, I, and so the way I like to look at that is like the behavior associated with that masculine energy is toxic for sure. Mm-hmm. But the actual reason for that is the wounded masculinity. It's the wounded masculine energy. Mm-hmm. You know, the men, men, have, men have been wounded and that, and that all that comes at, all that does is it manifests itself in toxic behavior, which is anger, destruction, abuse. Um, you know, that like being, being, I, I like to say be a warrior, but don't be at war. Mm-hmm. If you could be a warrior and not at war, yeah. that's the, that's the divine masculine. The, the, the toxic masculine, the wounded masculine is at war with everything. And that's where so many problems arise. Okay. Yeah. I've been diving into the masculine and feminine, both those things and, and learning so much because again, this lingo is, it's new in a way. Yeah. You know, it's totally new. I mean, like, I think that we're just starting to realize like, you know, the, the, the masculine and feminine energy, how they can coexist and how we have both of them. Cause we get so, you know, our nature, like we get so lost in one or the other, but to be, and to balance that that doing of the masculine energy and the being and the receiving of the feminine energy mm-hmm. is, I mean, it's that's where the that's where real strength comes from when you, when you can hold space in that in that balance. Right, definitely. Where can people find you? Because you have a lot of content out there that is very yeah, you know, consumable. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Instagram is the best place, and it's at Sam Gibbs Morris. That's G I B B S. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn too. At, uh, it's just my name, Sam Morris. Those are the two big platforms I spend my time on. Cool. And you're doing a TED talk now. It's, yes. It's going to be, ver- yes, yeah, it, I will, I will be at the venue and it will be live streamed. Okay. Um, but it's, yeah, there, there's gonna be nobody in the audience. So it'll be virtual in that respect. Okay. Will we be able to see that or is yes, it? Yes, of course. Yeah. Oh, okay. Absolutely. I will, I will, I will definitely be posting on all my channels about how to see that, how to do that, get tickets, whatever. Oh, well, we had a little bit of a Wi-Fi problem. Well, I encourage you to check out Sam on Instagram at Sam Gibbs Morris. I'll link everything in the show notes. And also if you can check his Ted talk, which is coming up in the next couple days on May 1st, it's titled why you need to stop settling for hope. Knowing Sam and the content that he puts out, this is going to be really, really good. So I encourage you to check it out. I want to acknowledge and thank Sam for showing up and truly being seen and sharing his life story up until now and really showing all of us that you can truly and completely transform your life when you choose the path of self-love and then choosing to serve others everything shifts, everything changes. Thanks again for being on this podcast and cheers to carving your own fucking path. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, definitely send it on over to a friend or family member or colleague who you think would enjoy it. If you are an entrepreneur and you are ready to hone your on-camera presence and you would love some help with that, so you can show up with ease and authenticity and just really be able to connect with your audience better. Get in touch with me. I work one-on-one with clients 
but I also do groups and work with teams and really just enhance your ability to show up and be seen on camera, which these days is super important. So get in touch with me. I mainly hang out over on Instagram. You can find me at where is Willow. Thanks again for being here. Cheers to carving your own fucking path.